everyone. My name is Matt, and it is great to be together today. I am curious about something. Did anyone have a favorite teacher growing up? Someone who impacted you or got through to you or yeah, some of you? In fact, why don't we just turn and just share with a neighbor the teacher's name and what it was you liked about them. And if you don't have one, just say, don't have, okay? <laughs> Go for it. Matt Carter. Yeah. Matt Carter. All right. Hopefully some of you have someone come to mind. Uh, just a little bit of large group sharing. What makes a good teacher? Like what are the qualities? What characteristics come to mind? Or did you see in this person? Just go ahead and say a few characteristics. Compassion. Compassion. Patience. Humility. Fun. Wisdom. What's that? More exciting. Yeah. Inspiring. How many of you found that um, when you think about it, this person was willing to challenge you? Like they were invested. It wasn't just show videos and here's some worksheets, right? Yeah. Um, I had a teacher in sixth grade, Mr. Klein, who probably impacted me more than any other teacher. And yes, he was fun. Uh, but what I remember about him is he actually had really high expectations. And again, I wonder if that's true for some of us, they, teachers that weren't afraid to push you or challenge you. Uh, back then, sixth grade was still a part of elementary school, and Mr. Klein took very seriously his role to prepare us for what was called then junior high, and things like organizational skills and social skills, and we, he talked about personal grooming, like showering and using deodorant <laughs> and that kind of thing. Now, up until that point, I was actually a, a B student, sometimes C, just kind of average. I, I did my thing, and I didn't think much about it. But for whatever reason, Mr. Klein saw something in me academically in terms of potential. I remember it came time for the science fair projects, and he was going to hand them out, and he said, there's five or six of you in the class. I'm going to give like an extra hard assignment. And I was like, good, that won't be me. And he says, Matt, and he calls me up to his desk, and he says, yeah, I'm one of these people. He says, I want you for your science fair project to, to study, uh, does the viscosity of a liquid affect its boiling point? And I was like, this what? <laughs> Near the end of the year, it was time to, you know, going into middle school or junior high, you start to get separated with advanced, regular, remedial. I'm sure that's not the right terms. And uh, he pulls me out in the hall hallway and he says, Matt, your grades aren't good enough for me to put you in honors English or honors math. But I just want to tell you, that's where you belong. Like, I think you have what it takes if you're willing to work for it. And I think over time, you can get there. And for whatever reason, first of all, that felt great to be seen and to kind of, no, I had never had anybody do that like that before. And I really took it to heart. And I went to work and I went to junior high and I, I worked hard and I applied myself and started getting B's and a few A's. And by eighth grade, I moved up to honors English, not honors math, but I kept working. And then when I was going to my freshman year, I got bumped up to honors math. And so here I go. It took me two years, but I'm, I'm on the track that he said he thought I could be on. Well, we moved. Um, so I started getting A's and B's. We moved like a week into my freshman year of high school. Not great timing. 
and moved to a new school that had started like two weeks before my school, so I was just felt way behind, way overwhelmed, and so I got some Bs my freshman year, and then kind of got my bearings, and I got all A's the rest of my high school career. Not because I'm all that smart, but because he believed in me, and I applied, I'm really not, I, my SAT score was terrible, I was like, what, that was weird, let me, re <laughs> let me redo that one, and then I got a worse score the second time. I actually called Mr. Klein um, when I graduated high school. I looked him up uh, just to thank him for the impact he had on my academic career up until that point. Again, I'm wondering if you have a similar teacher who saw your potential, who challenged you, who pushed you. Now, I bring all that up to say that when Jesus, the Son of God, came, he did not show up as a politician nor a diplomat nor a warrior. Jesus came to us. He showed up instead as a first century teacher, as a rabbi. And you think about Jesus' primary teaching method, his primary tool was, was parables. And we looked at one, the parable of the bags of gold last week. And just to show you how much Jesus utilized parables in his teaching, Mark 4 says, he did not say anything to them without using a parable. There are stories with a point. They're made-up stories that are designed to provoke, to challenge the listener's assumptions or understanding. Now, to say that Jesus' teaching was controversial, was divisive, is a massive understatement. Uh, for example, on the one hand, Matthew says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. This is a recurring thing, theme. This is amazing. Uh, Mark 1 says the people were all so amazed when he got done teaching that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching, like we've never heard this before, and with authority. In fact, people were so enamored with Jesus and his teaching that at one point John says they wanted to force him to be king on the spot. And Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, quietly slipped away from the crowd. So many people were simply amazed by Jesus' teaching. Other people, however, had the exact opposite response. One time when Jesus finished teaching in the synagogue in his hometown of Capernaum, Luke says, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. So there was something about the way Jesus taught and what he said that was apparently so offensive, so provocative, that people wanted to murder him on the spot. I've probably said some things that have made some people mad over the years. I've never had anything close to this happen. And so it's hard for us to appreciate fully how polarizing Jesus' teaching was to, to those who first heard him. I think one of the problems for us in grasping this, if, if, we were just, if we just took Jesus' primary teaching method, that of parables, the challenge is we're all so familiar with them. We've heard most of them and some of them many, many times. And so we sort of take for granted. Yeah, well, Jesus spoke in parables because he likes stories. And what a quaint little teaching device to, to reach out to simple, uneducated people. And we couldn't be more wrong. Um, they're anything but safe 
tame stories with a nice little moral point. But again, here's the challenge. Because we think we know them, especially the ones we're most familiar with, our favorites, the prodigal son, um, the good Samaritan, because we think we know them, what happens is we don't actually listen. Like as soon as we hear the beginning, there was once a man with two sons, or a man was on his way to Jericho and he fell into the hands of robbers. Our minds immediately jump to the end to what we already assume the parable is about. And as a result, they don't provoke us. They really don't cause like a heart-mind rupture like they did for people who first heard them. I mean, this was scandalous. It caused confusion. It caused division. I think it's helpful to try to put ourselves in the disciples' shoes, sandals, for a minute. Um, again, we're, we're just talking generally about Jesus as a teacher. Why did he take that approach? Think about how strange this is. For example, Jesus' use of parables can hardly be limited to the handful of instances that we find as, oh, entertaining, agreeable, simple, clear. Some of his parables aren't even stories at all. They're like two sentences. Uh, many of them are not agreeable. Most are actually quite complex. In fact, a handful of them, or many of them, cause more confusion than not. And get this, some of his lesser known parables portray God as the bad guy, or at least a shady character. That's kind of different. Occasionally, after giving a parable, Jesus would say, let me explain to you what this means. But more often than not, you know what he would do? Just walk away. No explanation, no clarification, no application point. None of the things that I essentially try to do every week when I'm here teaching. I mean, imagine if I did this. Imagine if I got up here and for the sermon, I said this. And no introduction, no welcome. I just got up here and I said, there was once a man who was convinced that he was a seed. He absolutely believed that. And, you know, Jesus talked about seeds a lot. And he couldn't get over, no matter how hard he tried, this irrational fear. And so he went to see a psychologist who reminded him over many sessions, you're not a seed, you are a human being, here are all the reasons why this belief is, is not founded in reality. And after a, a bunch of sessions, after a few months, the man had a breakthrough in the session. He goes, I finally get it. I'm not a seed after all. I am a human being. And he left the session overjoyed and relieved. And the therapist was pleased with himself for, for helping this man and doing his work well. Well, a couple of weeks pass and the therapist doesn't hear from the man and he just assumes, well, I guess it really must have, have, have worked. But then one day the man shows up unexpectedly, uninvited at the therapist's house and he's banging on the door and the therapist opens it to find a man who's frantic, who hardly is making any sense, who um, is just beside himself in distress. And the therapist says, well, tell me, what is going on? And he says, listen, it's my neighbors. My neighbors, and, and they just bought some chickens. And I'm terrified that they're going to eat me. And the therapist says, no, 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 we worked on this. Remember, you have nothing to worry about. You're not a seed. You're a person. To which the man replies, I know that, but do the chickens know it? 
Imagine if I said that and just left. I didn't unpack it. I didn't say, you know, this is a story about the ways we let other people determine our identity. Most of you would find that very strange and perhaps hate it um, because you've come to expect in a, a sermon or a teaching for for us to unpack a passage of scripture and explain it and to give some illustrations and for the end, for you to go, okay, I've got it. We're so accustomed to teaching that more or less affirms our current assumptions. More or less lines up with where we already are. And for sure, we want everything to wrap up at the end and for there to be a nice bow on top. And I'm just telling you, these are the things Jesus often refuses to do. What a bizarre approach for someone who obviously had a very important message to share. Sure hope the guy doesn't start a church or something. It's, so, it's, it's odd in our culture, too, where you think about how much we want attention. And you think about influencers and how can I build my platform and get a bigger audience. And then you see Jesus and the disciples come to him one time and they can't find him. And they say to him in Mark 1, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. Let's, exp- let's get a larger venue. Let's add a second night. And Jesus goes, let's go somewhere else. That's why I've come to, to teach in other places. They can find me if they want. He doesn't always do what we remember him doing. Now, sometimes he would sit the disciples down and he'd say, hey, do you have any idea what that parable meant, what I was talking about? And they would sheepishly say, we're not even going to try to guess at this point. <laughs> like, we know better by now. Once after telling a parable, um, Mark says, Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? <laughs> it's like, if you don't get this, you're definitely not going to get the rest. This is like my easiest material, and you're already lost. He's trying to get the disciples to move from point A to point Z, and they have no idea how far they have to go. The problem is for them, they keep stumbling, they keep falling apart at like point B. It's like when you load your family up in the car and you got to drive to Florida and it's this big ordeal and one of your kids has to use the bathroom in like Daleville. And you're like, we are never going to get there. Mark 4.33 says, with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. (sighs) Finally, an explanation. That's all we wanted, you know. What's the bottom line? Give it to us plain and simple. I remember when I was in the second grade, I had a terrible time grasping the math concept of greater than, less than. I couldn't do it. I I knew 12 was bigger than 9. But there was something about the greater, that that language or the symbol or something that just, it boggled my mind. And my poor teacher, Miss May, bless her, tried explaining in several ways and, you know, calling me out in front of, here's two numbers, Matt, which one? Is this greater than or less than? And I was like, less than? Just guessing because it's a 50-50 shot, right? (laughs) 
And she got a little frustrated, I think. And so one day she made me stay in from recess for some one-on-one time because she knew if I didn't grasp this, that something would come later that I wouldn't definitely, you know, geometry theorems or something that I was definitely not going to be able to get. And so finally she said, okay, Matt, think of, think of this like an alligator's mouth. And the alligator always wants to eat the greater, bigger number, chomp, chomp, chomp. And I was like, why didn't you just say that? That makes perfect sense. I'm waking this way, way too hard. Going back to Jesus, the only problem is that oftentimes the explanation itself didn't clear anything up. It left them scratching their heads more than the parable did in the first place. The Jewish philosopher Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, he once told a story about how when the electric streetcar made its first appearance on the streets of Warsaw, Poland, some good old Jews could not believe their eyes. A car that moves without a horse. Some of them were stupefied, even frightened. All of them were at a loss of how to explain this amazing invention. So one time they're at synagogue afterward discussing this new, this new streetcar. And someone comes in who, who knew scripture really well, but was also reputed to be well-versed in more worldly things. And they said to him, tell us, you must know how this works. He says, of course I do. And they're listening to him every word, just hanging on with total concentration. He said, imagine four large vertical wheels on the four corners of a rectangle. You got it? Like, yeah, we get it. He said, those four wheels are connected by wires. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Well, those four wires go to the middle of the car where there's another wheel that's horizontal. And the wires are tied in a knot running inside this horizontal wheel. Do you guys get that? And they're like, yeah, that makes sense. Well, on top of this large horizontal wheel in the middle is a smaller wheel and then another smaller. Each one's smaller than the last. And on top of that is a tiny screw with a wire running to the center of the car. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Well, the conductor inside the car presses a button that goes to the wire that turns the tiny screw, that turns the small wheel and the bigger wheel and the bigger wheel, all the way down to the bottom wheel, which has a wire running to the four wheels. And in that way, the car runs through the street. And they said, ah, now we understand. They didn't understand at all. (laughs) That's what a lot of people did with Jesus' teaching. Oh, okay, now we get it. But then they would go out and say something or do something that revealed they definitely did not get it. Why? Why did Jesus take this approach? Why did he make this so confusing at times? I mean, you think about it, he gives often indirect answers to direct questions. He often answers a question with what? With another question. He leaves things at times unresolved. He tells them these mysterious parables whose meaning wasn't often immediately clear. My question is, why did the greatest teacher in history seem to purposefully obscure his message at times? And again, his message was very important. I mean, did he want his disciples to fail the test or something? No, that can't be it. There must be something else going on. You go back to Mark 4, 33. 
with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them, and this is key, as much as they could understand, which means he's actually not telling them everything he knows. He's purposefully holding himself back. Here's what I think is going on. Like a good teacher, and Jesus is a brilliant teacher, he knows right where his students are. He knows how much, to what point he can push them to, to prompt their growth and, and how one step farther would be too much. And so he very purposefully leads the disciples right up to the edge of what they could handle, what they could grasp. In other words, Jesus let them struggle. Actually, he didn't just let them struggle. He intentionally provoked them. He's like, here's the deep end. At one point, Jesus is teaching, and the disciples lean over, and they whisper to each other, this is really hard teaching. Who can accept it? This is brutal, in other words. Like, how are people going to stay on board with this? Why does Jesus take them to the edge of even giving up on their faith? In fact, many walk away, and he lets them. I want you to think about what Jesus is actually trying to do. He's not simply adding a little bit on top of their current framework, their current understanding about who God is and what God is up to in the world. He's not making a few minor tweaks to their current belief system. Mm -mm. He's wanting to blow up their current understanding to cause them to rethink everything they thought they knew about God and what God was looking for from us. Which means Jesus had to first challenge their underlying assumptions. He had, to, he had to get them to unlearn certain old ways of thinking that were ingrained in them so that then they would have room to learn something new. I think that's why when it comes to his parables and his illustrations, Jesus rarely uses these parables to explain things to people's satisfaction. Rather, he uses the parables to actually show people the poverty, the lack in their current belief, in their current understanding and assumptions. That's why he told parables, stories designed to sneak past our defenses that cause us to confront, that confront our unquestioned assumptions, our unquestioned, this is how we always thought it was. That's why he would begin a teaching often by saying, here's what you've heard, here's what you've believed up till now. I'm here to tell you and just explosion and shrapnel and chaos, right? You've all seen those home makeover shows that are on all the time where they show you really dramatic before and after photos. And it's like impressive. Like, wow, that turned out great. But if you've ever watched these shows or if you've like remodeled your kitchen or something, you know that it's, it's bad. That's why you're remodeling it. It needs an update, a refresh. You know that things actually have to get worse, from that point, before they can get better. Like more of a mess, more of a, oh boy, what did we, what did we get ourselves into? You know, you rip, up, you rip up the flooring in the kitchen and you find there's damage to the subfloor. And now you're getting into that. And that was a problem you didn't even know you had. You have to go backwards to make sure the project is done right from the ground up to get the results you want. 
I think that's what Jesus is doing with his teaching. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We got to go back farther than you thought. We got to go back to the core assumptions. We got to take this thing down to the studs or the foundation. The invitation when Jesus calls us to repent. Yeah, it's all of life. But that starts with, I want you to change the way you think. I want you to change your mind. I want you to reimagine your entire life from the ground up around the kingdom of God. It's no surprise that another word for disciple is actually student, learner. That's what disciple means, apprentice. Jesus, the son of God, comes to us as a teacher and invites us to be students, to take the posture of a learner. Because Jesus knows we're not as objective as we think, that we've inherited certain beliefs and worldview and assumptions from the culture around us that he wants to undo, to unlearn. We need his help. We need clarity from the outside. Jesus knows we're stubborn. We don't change on our own very easily. Think about this. What are you wrong about right now in your beliefs? I don't know. I think I believe everything that's right. Otherwise, I would change my mind, right? I've referenced that TED Talk before of, uh, I think, the woman saying, what does it feel like to be wrong? And the person says, it feels bad. It fe I'm embarrassed that I used to believe that, or I can't believe I thought that. And she says, no, 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 you're describing what it feels like to know you're wrong. To actually be wrong, though, and not know it feels like being right. We're stubborn. We're locked in. We need shaken up if we're going to get out of these, these grooves and these patterns. Jesus knows that the core to, to learning, to growth, this whole process, he knows that disorientation, confusion, discomfort, tension, disruption, struggle, and frustration often precede new understanding, perspective, growth. That before the growth, before the change, before the aha moment that sets your life in a new direction, before any of that, there's usually a struggle. There's a tunnel of chaos. There's disruption to the status quo. This is true in almost every area of our lives. Let's say that you're an athlete or you're wanting to build muscle. You know that to gain muscle, you can't just do your regular daily routine. Because your body, your, your muscles are accustomed to what you're doing already. So your muscles are going, we got this. We're fine just the way we are. Your muscles know that nothing more is going to be required of them. No, the way that you build muscle, and this is layman's terms, sorry, is by basically doing exercises that disorient your body, by introducing your, your body, your muscles, to exercises, to weights that you're not used to. So that your body is then going, wait, what is this? This is new. This is not what we do. I guess we're going to have to grow. See, I told you that was a layman's. Uh, I'm not an expert. But the point is, we know this process is not pleasant. It's a shock to your system. Especially when we spend so much of our existence doing the complete opposite. Minimizing discomfort. But in order to grow in this way, physically, literally, you have to accept that some discomfort is not actually your enemy, it's a requirement. Or remember when you first learned algebra, and I could not do this now, 
to save my life. But up until this point, your relationship with math, however tenuous that was, involved only numbers. And then one day, all of a sudden, these crazy letters, X's and Y's, are introduced. And your teacher said, now we're going to solve math problems involving numbers, and we don't even know what all the numbers are. And you went, what the heck is going on? That was a foreign concept to you, right? I mean, how do you solve math problems, problems involving numbers, when you don't have all the numbers in front of you? To grasp the concepts of algebra, you have to first be willing to embrace some disorientation. You actually have to let go of what previously made sense in order to make room for something new. Unless you're willing to work through this season of confusion, frustration, struggle, you can't go forward. And how many kids are like, oh, I see somebody playing music. I want to play the guitar. And they, they get lessons. And the lessons start with like a scale. And it's hard. And it, I don't see how that connects to like getting up there and, 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 and playing music. That's why so many people quit learning a language. You mean the adjective goes after the noun? Get, the, get out of here with that. You have to embrace them. You got to just suspend your disbelief for a minute and make room for something new. Every area where you have grown significantly in your life, academically, professionally, where you've grown relationally, your social skills, your ability to work out conflict in a marriage or relationship or whatever, looking back on that season, I almost guarantee you, you'll find some struggle. You'll find a moment where you were like, this is hard. This might be more than I can handle. I can't see my way through this. But looking back, you would say it was actually because of that tension, because of that struggle, that learning the hard way, that's actually made you who you are, where you are today. It's interesting that in every other area of life, we readily accept that this is necessary, that this is how we grow. But for some reason, when it comes to our faith, when it comes to maturing in our relationship with God, we expect things to be easy and effortless and painless. We don't really want to be students. We don't really want to be learners. We want to be passive consumers. Guess where we got that from? All around us all the time. And so it's no surprise it shows up in a place like this. We want to minimize the struggle. We want comfortable. We want predictable. But we rarely grow because of that. So what does Jesus do? Man, he pushes those disciples. Man, he challenges them. Not because he's mean. Not because he's impatient. Not because he lacks tact. He does it because he actually, think about my teacher, Mr. Klein, he actually believes they have what it takes. He believes in them. Like a great parent or teacher or coach he knows that the only way they're going to develop and grow um, into the people they can become is, is through this. He sees their potential. Remember, he's actually the one who chose them, which means he believes in them and probably believes in them more than they believe in themselves. And so that's why he pushes them. Which brings me to the Karate Kid, obviously. Mr. Miyagi, if you remember this movie, 
had to take the karate kid, whatever his name was. Anybody know it? Daniel, yeah, Daniel's son. Had to take the karate kid backwards in order to go forwards. And so he asked him to do things. Wax on, wax off, paint the fence, to do all these things that seemingly have no connection whatsoever to becoming a karate master. Mr. Miyagi's like, I want to see if this kid wants it bad enough. I want to see if he's willing to do some things that don't make sense. To see if he's ready, if he wants to become my student and do this my way. And Daniel thinks that Mr. Miyagi is just being unnecessarily tough or that he's crazy or whatever. And the truth is the opposite. He does it because he believes the kid has what it takes. That is Jesus. Mr. Miyagi is Jesus? <laughs> no. <laughs> Jesus also knows what the disciples don't know. He's been to where he's trying to lead them, to a place, to an understanding that from their current vantage point, they can't possibly imagine. He knows they're not seeing very clearly who he is and what he's about. He knows they're still thinking along old category lines and old assumptions, and their questions and their dumb arguments just reveal how far they have yet to go. And there's a sense of urgency because Jesus knows he doesn't have long. And so he pushes them and he gives them as much as they can understand, and I'd argue sometimes a little bit past that point, to stretch them. And he asks them to trust him in the process. Jesus apparently values pursuit. He values learning and seeking. And, and how do you find out who those people are? Well, you certainly don't give them everything up front. You don't make it easy. Jesus valued pursuit. He valued guided discovery. He invites each one of us to become students, to become learners, that in our discipleship to him, we're to let him challenge how we see the world, our beliefs, our assumptions, the things we take for granted, the things we've been told. I mean, we're all formed by all of these voices in our culture shaping us all the time. Paul says it this way, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That does not just happen passively. Jesus doesn't do that for you magically while you're scrolling social media and binge watching Netflix, unfortunately. It happens as we take our role as students, as learners of Jesus, seriously. Let his view of reality inform our own with the help of the Holy Spirit. Jesus even says at one point, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. I got a lot more. You can't even handle it. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Again, I think all of this implies pursuit. It implies a hunger, a desire for more. I mean, you were made for more, but in order to discover what that is, you have to decide to become a learner. This is not easy for us. We want quick, easy, painless. Give it to me in five steps. I mean, you read a book now and you can't even read it. They got to take a thing and put it, a big quote right in the middle. It's like, and you, your eye goes to it and you go, oh, I just read that. We want the stuff in bold. We want, the, we want Cliff's Notes to A Tale of Two Cities. We don't want to have to actually read that book. We bring all of that with us here. 
And it's very easy because of our culture to have a gimme, gimme, gimme approach. And Jesus, again, doesn't do that. Those people do not last very long. I love how Jesus made people work for it. He didn't book arenas. He wasn't on Life 360 where you could just look on there. I mean, you had to work to find this guy, to learn from him. And so my question to you is, do you really want to go after it? Are you willing to let Jesus change your assumptions? I think it kind of starts with, do I really believe Jesus has anything to teach me? Or do I kind of have it all figured out? When was the last time, as it relates to your faith, that you felt disoriented? That you felt like you were in this tunnel of chaos trying to figure things out and you're, you're following Jesus and you're asking questions and you're seeking and you're pursuing, but there's a struggle. There's frustration. If it's been a while, or if that maybe hasn't happened to you, it means we have to ask some questions about, am I really a serious student? Because again, look what Jesus did with his disciples. Let me ask it another way. Does your learning stop on Sunday? What does it look like, what does it look like to become a learner? It requires humility, openness, willing to invest in other opportunities to study scripture on our own, to listen to sermons, to go to the women's Bible study and, and, and be willing to learn. It means examining our beliefs that we're not so quick to dismiss someone with whom we disagree. It means we're willing to change our mind, we're willing to be wrong, that we have a spirit of curiosity. It's what a student does. They're like exploring, they're trying to figure this stuff out. Maybe it's praying something along these lines. God, show me if there's anything I believe that's not from you. So I just, I guess that's a personal challenge. Are you a learner? Are you a student? Are you willing to wrestle and to struggle in order to grow? Now, that's personal. I do want to make a corporate application here because, by the way, church is not each one of us doing our own thing and coming together, then doing our own thing, and we're all these little islands. There's actually some stuff we're supposed to do together. Um, I'm really excited. Christy mentioned you've been hearing about starting on Sunday, September 10th. Uh, we're going to do a series in conjunction with a group experience called Seeking Shalom. Shalom just being the, the biblical, the Hebrew word uh, for peace, for wholeness, for connection. It's it's right relationship with God, with myself, with others, and with creation. That's shalom. And it's about our approach to poverty. And I think if we're honest, at least in my experience, a lot of it isn't working. We're good people. I know lots of Christians with great hearts who want to give, who want to serve, who want to make a difference, and that's wonderful. But I think we're going to discover we've had, some of us, I have had some wrong assumptions. I've had good intentions, but wrong assumptions. And what happens is in our desire to help in the area of poverty, we end up doing things that actually aren't very dignified and aren't as helpful and in some ways actually cause more problems than, than good. And so for several weeks, six weeks, we're going to be looking at a biblical foundation for how do we approach poverty and by the way, we're going to find out perhaps poverty isn't just financial, that we have some inner poverty 
of, in our own, that maybe we have some brokenness in our relationship with God, ourselves, others, and creation, that there's shalom is broken in our own lives. And what does Jesus mean when he says, hey, the poor you'll always have with you. You won't always have me. Well, okay, I guess we don't have to do anything. What's he mean when he says that? So we'll spend several weeks on the biblical foundation, kind of biblical worldview. How do we reach out and how do we reimagine our response to poverty? On top of that, uh, we have groups, our existing small groups. There's 13 of them that are, have said yes to the group experience. And then we're going to have several large groups, one at Sunday at 9 a.m., another one on Sunday at 9 a.m. just for college students, Sunday at 5 o'clock in the evening, and Monday at 6 o'clock. And so I want to ask every one of you to consider strongly engaging in this class. Think of it like a responding to poverty 101. And yes, it's coming from a Christian perspective and foundation, but it's also coming from practitioners, people who've like worked this out in relationship and seen community transformation. And I got to tell you, one of the really cool things about all of this and why I'm so excited about where we're going as a church in this area. As you know, we've been talking all year about how can we as Commonway impact our community. 12 years ago, when uh, Commonway started at the Horizon Center, I read a book called Toxic Charity by Bob Lupton. And he kind of identified all the ways that were well-intentioned in helping alleviate poverty that end up not empowering people, not dignifying people, not, it's not relationally honoring, and it frankly isn't working. And I had our whole board read that. And so for the last 12 years, we've been like, okay, well, we don't want to do that. But lacking clarity on, okay, what does that look like? And over the years, we met folks like Food for the Hungry in Nicaragua who are doing this very thing, empowering leaders and taking a more holistic, relational, slow approach. And probably back in January, I emailed uh, Joy Redinger, who runs Urban Light CDC, the community outreach organization. And I said, do you have any materials or recommendations for how to, how, to, how to help us grow in this? And she recommended Seeking Shalom. And I look it up, and lo and behold, Bob Lupton, who wrote Toxic Charity, it's his organization. And you know, coming from them, highly recommended. They are practitioners. They're doing this, and along with 812. And so God just kind of opening these doors and bringing people with a common approach and this desire together, and we want to be a part of that. So again, six weeks, I'm asking you to engage in the class. This is going to be a time when we have to unlearn some things and engage in suspending our disbelief for a moment. So it's going to challenge us, and it's probably going to push some buttons, and I'm going to be right there alongside of you learning with you. And so if you want to be in a, a class, really the large group, um, sign up in the lobby. If you're currently in a group that's doing this study and you don't have your book, also in the lobby, you can, you can buy the book. And then one more thing. On September 9th, the Saturday before this begins, uh, Sean Duncan, who also wrote the, the workbook, the material, he's going to be here. And we're doing a community workshop here in this room from 9 to noon on Saturday the 9th. And this is another learning opportunity where Sean's going to talk about how do we engage in, the, in these neighborhoods that we're trying to reach out to and we're trying to help and serve. And one of the things I hope that we all come away with from this is like, oh, now we have a common language and a common approach um, 
and how when I show up in, in the old West End or in South Central or Avondale or industry, how can I be helpful? Um, and so that's what that is about. And I invite you, you know, scan that QR code and let us know you're coming. Be curious. Be humble. Be willing to kind of wrestle and engage in that tunnel of chaos and to disrupt the status quo. We as a church cannot reach our potential for impacting our city unless we're a church that's willing to learn, to change our minds, to study, to embrace and endure some discomfort, to allow Jesus to be our teacher and to frame our worldview and our, our minds. Would you stand with me and we'll pray. I want to remind you that if you have a need in your life that we can join you in praying about, that we have some folks coming up on either side of the room. Listen, we would love, we, we do this all the time, hey, pray for me, yeah, I'll pray for you. We'd love to actually pray for you right now if that's something that would be helpful to you. All right, let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would help us in any area where we're maybe not doing this um, to become your students, to actually take seriously that you want to teach us, that you want to give us, um, Scripture says, the mind of Christ, that you want us to see ourselves and other people and our community the way that you do. Lord, we confess that we're a, a whole bundle of things, of of assumptions and things we've inherited and beliefs that have been handed to us by, by who knows where. And that it's very easy to just go along status quo and to not question those. But I pray that, that today, this week, in this coming series, that you, we would allow you to shine the bright light of your truth into every area of our lives. And that you would renew our minds that you would give us your vision um, at, at whatever cost that is to us. May we be humble. God, help us to be, be curious. Help us as we engage in this study to be gracious toward people with whom we disagree. Guide us. Lord, I pray that you would increase our hunger to pursue you and to learn more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for worshiping with us. I hope you all have a great day and a great week, and we will see you next time.